have your Bible or Bible app with you, I invite you to open it up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 27 to 30 is where we're going to be spending our time this week. Next week, we're actually going to look at verses 31 to 32. But while you do that, let me welcome you. It's great to be gathered uh, virtually with you this morning. Grateful to Pastor Sam for allowing me to open God's Word with you and to just hear what God has to say for us. And so let me just uh, pray briefly and then we'll read our passage together. Father, I do pray now as we specifically turn to looking at your word. Father, would you please communicate to us? Lord, we want your word to penetrate deep into our lives. Father, we want them to change us and make us more like Jesus. Lord, help us to see you in a fresh way this morning. I pray we would see you with greater majesty and glory than we ever have before. And so do this work, Lord, in our midst. You are the sovereign and omnipresent God. So we just ask you to work through us and in us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let me read our passage for us this morning. Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In public speaking, they say that it is important to try and captivate your audience from the get-go. To hook them in, to make sure that they're paying attention. Well, sometimes there are certain topics or passages, if you will, where that is maybe less necessary. I think our passage this morning is one of those instances. I mean, just think, in the span of four verses, we hear topics such as marriage, adultery, lust, dismemberment, eternal destruction, And holding really all of those categories together is the topic of sex. And so let me just quickly speak to parents this morning. I just want to let you know that this morning I will not be vulgar or crass, but I will be clear. We are going to be looking at some difficult topics that may be too mature for young children. And so I just... ask you as parents to use your discretion if if you feel it is important for them to go off and do another activity while you listen to the sermon and then revisit the topic later encourage you to do that but if not children are welcome to listen in i will be clear and really my aim this morning is that they will be understand the way that god has designed sex and for them to flourish in this life Now, sex in the church has been dealt with in a number of different manners. If you're from an older generation, I think in many ways, sex or the topic of sex, should say, was off limits. 
it was kind of out of bounds, and so you didn't really talk about it. In many ways, it was considered maybe dirty. I don't know if they would use that word, but it, it, it seemed as though sex was this kind of this off-limits topic that you would really only do with your wife or your husband. Sex was dirty, so only do it with the person you love, right? That was the irony of it all. I think there was a fear, and in many ways it was a good fear, that talking about sex would awaken one's passions and lead to sexual morality. And so the idea was, hush, hush, let's not really talk about that here. Now, in the younger generation in the church, I think there's been somewhat a pendulum swing. The younger generation has said, no, this is a wonderful topic. Sex is a gift from God, and so we should discuss it. We should bring it out into the open. We should celebrate this. The problem, though, here is that in many ways, the sexual ethic of the church has begun to look like the sexual ethic of the culture. The church, in many ways, has begun to get its cues from the culture instead of vice versa. Now, the topic of sex in the culture, on the other hand, is one where it is ordinary. The many ways, in many ways, the, the, the culture has said that sex is intrinsic to humanity. It ought to be enjoyed as often as desired and however one desires it, so long as it is not impinging on the desires of someone else. Sex should be, according to our culture, casual, free of commitment, and without emotional attachment. Now, here's what all of those ideas, approaches concerning sex have in common. All of them say that sex is a big deal. Sex is a big deal. The older generation says sex is serious and impactful, and so we kind of need to skirt the topic. We, we know that it, it can bring about great harm. Sex, in many ways, is like a fire. If, if you, the fire is in the fireplace, it's wonderful. But if the fire is in the living room, it is very destructive. So sex is a big deal, so let's not really bring it up. The younger generation says sex is a big deal and it's a gift from God, and so we need to destigmatize it. We need to bring it up out into the open. We need to talk about it. We need to let people see what God's design for sex is. Sex is many ways like a work of art. It's a Monet, except instead of having the Monet in the museum where it belongs, they sometimes bring it out into the Skytrain station, if you will, where everyone can come on by and have a glance and maybe even look at it and touch it for themselves. Now, sex in the culture is also a big deal. You need to hear this. Just because sex is ordinary doesn't mean sex is insignificant or unimportant. If sex is, according to our culture, essential is essential to human nature, if it's part of everyday life, if it's common, then in many ways, sex is as big of a deal as humanity is itself. Here's some proof of this. The industry of pornography is over a $1 trillion industry per year. Let me put that into perspective for you. If every working class individual in Canada was paid $50,000 a year, you could employ 
every single Canadian in the porn industry. Everyone could be involved. Ordinary does not mean small. Ordinary actually means incredibly huge and significant. Sex to our culture is like water. It's a basic human right and it should be distributed to everyone. So everyone, the older generation in the church, the younger generation in the church, and the culture themselves say that sex is a big deal. Here's the problem with all of those things. None of them say sex is a big enough deal. Sex is actually too small a topic in all of those concepts and approaches. The Bible says that sex is more significant and more impactful than they can imagine. Sex in the Bible is not only physical, it is also emotional and spiritual. Sex, this is my aim this morning, my aim is to show you that sex points to a deeper reality. Sex points beyond itself and thus has wider implications for our lives. So I'd like to approach the topic of sex in our passage this morning in three points. The first point is the significance of sex. The second point is the destruction of desire. And the third point is the significance of sex. Yes, I am having the same point twice, and I think it's so significant that we need to look at it twice. So let's look at the first point, the significance of sex. Look at verse 27 again. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus here is affirming the Old Testament commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery is the seventh commandment. It is a direct quote from Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. And so Jesus is affirming that commandment, and now he's actually going to build on it. This is the Old Testament ethic of sex. Here we go. Sex is to be reserved only for marriage. Sex is to be reserved only for marriage. So question then is, well, what is marriage according to the Old Testament? Well, we're going to look at this in detail next week. But for now, I think it's important to our conversation to describe marriage as a covenant. It's a covenant. A covenant, now what's that, is an agreement that either establishes or defines a relationship. A covenant is more intimate and more personal than merely a legal agreement. But a covenant is also more binding than a relationship that is only based on emotions. Now, next week, I want to show you that it's actually more intimate. A, A marriage is more intimate because it's binding. But for now, let me kind of tease out the differences between a covenant relationship and another type of relationship. I think if you really want to boil down relationships to two categories, they are this. A covenant relationship and a consumer relationship. A consumer relationship. Now, a consumer relationship is a relationship where you use someone else to serve your own needs. An example of this is going to the grocery store. You go, you shop for some meat per se, and you and you pay the grocery store for that product, but... If for some reason you can find a better product 
or a cheaper product, a product that costs you a little less, then you have real no commitment to that grocery store. You, you go off and you purchase your meat somewhere else. A consumer relationship says, I tell you what I want and you adjust to me. A covenant relationship, on the other hand, says that relationship is more important than your own desires. Instead of you adjusting to me, I adjust to you because the relationship is more important than my needs. Relationship comes first. And that's the way marriage is intended to act. Both partners are intended to try and input, contribute as much as they can. They seek to give and not get out. Now, sex, then, is an act that we have in marriage, and thus it is not a consumer good, but a covenant good. See, sex inside of marriage is an act of self-giving. It's intended to be used for the joy and pleasure of your spouse. Sex, in many ways, is like a sacrament. A sacrament is an outward symbol of an inward reality. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. So when you become naked before your spouse and you give of yourself to him or her, you are in essence declaring that all of me, my entire being is vulnerable and open and for you. I hold none of myself back. I give you everything that I am. Sex, Keller says, Tim Keller is a pastor in, or former pastor in New York City. Sex, he says, is covenant cement. It's covenant cement. So sex, as an act inside of marriage, is a sacrament. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality, and thus it is, in a way, like covenant cement. It's an, it's an act of renewing your vows. It's an act of showing and acting that your whole life belongs to that other person. Now, what is sex outside of marriage? Well, sex outside of marriage is a form of currency or marketing. Sex is used to promote yourself or is used in order to try to get something back from the other person. Sex is not giving, but it is getting. Sex inside of marriage is commitment. Sex outside of marriage is a trial run. It's like going to the grocery store. It's like seeing if you can do better elsewhere. The New York Times had an article that ran a number of years ago called The Downside of Cohabitation. The Downside of Cohabitation. What they saw is that both men and women, their standard for a live-in partner was much lower than that of a spouse. 
Essentially, what they are saying is that I'm okay with living with this person for now, but really long term, down the road, I want someone better. I want someone better later on. The problem is, is then you carry that same mentality with you once you get married. You get married, and you're still saying, well, maybe down the road I can have someone better. See, see, the culture thinks that when they're living together, when they're having sex together, they're trying to determine whether or not they're compatible. Really, that's just a short, twisted way of saying, I'm just trying to find out if this person is good enough for me. When you have sex outside of marriage, you are training yourself to be a consumer. And thus, the New York Times wrote, through their empirical scientific study, said, those who are living together before marriage are more likely to divorce after they get married. Which then really brings us to our second point. The devastation of desire. So sex is, an, is significant because it's a physical act of giving oneself, which, which symbolizes an internal act of giving of oneself, which brings us then to the devastation of desire. So verse, verse 27 and onward, let me read it for us again. It says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So, so Jesus affirms the Old Testament sexual ethic that, that sex is an act intended to be used in marriage alone. But then he also wants to go after our desires and our thoughts. Now, we might read these verses and think, well, Jesus is a buzzkill. <laughs> Jesus is a, is a grouch. He, he's anti-sex. And the reality is that just is not true. That is not what we find in the rest of the Bible. I mean, just think for a moment. How does the Bible begin? I mean, I mean just go to Genesis chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2. Genesis 2, verse 23, right? God creates all of creation. He creates Adam, the first male. Adam has no helper suitor, suitable for him in the rest of creation. And so he's kind of a little bit down. He's a little bit alone and, and sad. And so what does God do? God creates a woman for him. He, he creates Eve. And then God brings Eve to Adam. She is a naked woman standing before a naked man. And what does Adam do? The only way to truly express his happiness is to burst out in song or in poem. He says in chapter 2, verse 23, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Adam is given a beautiful spouse, and he sings over her. <laughs> 
And then, you know, God says, be fruitful and multiply. It's not like God goes away and he comes back and he's like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? Like, I didn't, I didn't think that was happening. No, he gives them the act of sex to enjoy. And, and in case you think that sex is only intended to be used for procreation, well, you just have to go to the great love song in the Bible, the Song of Solomon. Listen, listen to these words. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Now, this is, this is a husband singing over his wife. This is what he says. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Just a pointer. Husbands, do not use some of these lines. That's probably one of them. Maybe there's some others you can use. That's not a good one. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of short ooze. You have all your teeth that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breeze and the shadow flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And it just goes on and on. And then guess what? She sings back. She sings romantic love songs, rejoicing in her husband's nakedness. Sexual desire, physical attraction in and of itself is not bad. It is good. But if sex begins to consume one's thoughts, if sex leads one to love God or to love someone else less, then it is dangerous. Then it is devastating. Sexual desire is not bad. Lust is. See, if you go back to Matthew, in verse 28... That phrase, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, that phrase lustful intent is a Greek verb that is normally translated deep desire. Deep desire. Normally, that word is actually translated in other contexts as either idolatry or greed. And so I think it's actually helpful to just pause and think about greed for a second. What is greed? Well, the Bible says money in and of itself is not bad. You can have money. You can have lots of money. That is not bad. But greed towards money is sinful. And so what is greed? Well, greed is selfishness. It's, it's wanting money not to help others, but for pure personal enjoyment. Greed is addicting. You want it, you're desperate to have it, so you, you do whatever it takes to get it. 
You, you cross boundaries. You overwork. You trample over the lowly. You neglect your family. You do whatever you need to do in order to have it. And then greed is also a fantasy. Greed is something that consumes your thoughts. You're, you're always wondering what you would do with that money if you had it. Consumes you. Well, if we now take this same approach to money, if we take greed and apply it to sexual desire, well, what does that look like in our culture? I think the most dangerous form of sexual greed or lust, if you will, in our culture is pornography. Pornography is a consumer good par excellence. You literally pay for it. Just think about it. It is absolutely selfish. It requires nothing of you. It's all about your own feelings and your own pleasures. You give nothing of yourself to anyone else. It's also incredibly addicting. Scientific studies have showed that those who view pornography are in many ways experiencing symptoms or dopamine levels in their brain equivalent to taking cocaine. And so you, you view pornography and you need more of it. You need more of it. You need more of it. You need more of it in order to get your fix. And all of a sudden, what does that do to the rest of your life? Well, the rest of your life brings you less and less and less pleasure. You're able to experience less happiness in the rest of life because your mind has become accustomed to such high levels of dopamine from viewing pornography. It's addicting. It is a drug. My wife was just sharing the fact that in her school, there are high school students who will go to bed at 11 o'clock or claim to go to bed at 11 o'clock, but then in reality, only go to sleep at 3. Because for four hours, click after click after click is filling their brain with this drug. It's, it's killing our culture. You need to understand, if you know someone who is suffering from an addiction to pornography, it is a drug. It is grabbing a hold of their life and destroying them. And that's not to shame them. It's just to plead with them that they need out. And then, of course, it's a fantasy as well. You literally click on whatever category you want that suits your own personal preference. It's a way of escaping reality. Pornography and masturbation is an idol that seeks to replace God for security and pleasure. Let me give you a flip side of that. I would claim that fantasizing, trying to concoct a dream fairy tale life in your mind is another form of sexual greed. Now, now that may seem strange to you, but really what you are doing is you are making romance into an idol. You're, you're thinking that if only your spouse looked this way, if only you had an ideal family that did this, if only your home looked like this or your lifestyle looked like this, all resulting from your romantic kind of encounters and engagements, well, then you're just 
doing the same thing as greeting or lusting over another naked woman or husband. It's selfish because you, you want a life to look like a certain way for you. It's addicting because you, in many ways, abandon your current responsibilities, knowing that maybe, just maybe, one day life could look different for you, and then you fantasize about it. Consumes your thoughts. If only my life, my romance, my family looked different. And it's that reason, it's those destructive powers that lust has that Jesus says, get it out of your life. When Jesus says, you know, if it's causing you to stumble, gouge out your eye. If your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. Jesus is not, not actually saying you need to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. He's just giving you language that says, do whatever it takes to get rid of it. It's destroying you. You have to take drastic steps. It's a drug. It's killing you. There's a book that was published a few years ago called Premarital Sex in America. Premarital Sex in America. And what this book sought to do was debunk a bunch of beliefs about sex that most of America believed. And one of those aspects was, again, the issue of pornography. And so they came out with these conclusions after their scientific research. They said that porn viewers, both male and female, have crushingly unrealistic, let me say that again, I quote, crushingly unrealistic expectations of what people should look like and what they should perform like. They also said this, that Particularly male porn viewers have a lower threshold and tolerance for difficulty that arise in their real relationships. See, this is what's in many ways decreasing the number of people getting married in our culture. It's not just that, well, my sexual desires are being satisfied, so I don't need a spouse. It's also that, well, a spouse is hard work. Viewing pornography is easy and I don't really want to deal with the hardship or difficulty of relationships so I won't engage in that reality. It's also though the problem is is making you adverse to hardship in all other aspects of life. So something difficult comes your way and you run from it. Lastly they said all women, I quote, all women are having to accommodate to appearance and the fashion of the porn industry. It's filtered down into our fashion industry so that every single woman is being tempted to look a certain way and dress a certain way. Again, I don't say these things to guilt you. I say these things to warn you and plead with you to get out, to take drastic steps to do whatever it can you can to run and destroy this sin in your life lust is a lie it's a lie it, it's like the serpent in the garden he, he comes and says look at this it's pleasing to the eye delight in this 
eat, except he lies to you. He doesn't tell you the moment you do it, you die. It's what lust is. It's what emotional adultery is. And so what will it take in your life to be rid of it? Seriously. Maybe you have to actually get rid of your smartphone and go back to a flip phone. Maybe you need to disconnect internet in your home. Maybe you need to get rid of computers in your home. Maybe you need to avoid certain magazines. You need to stop watching reality TV shows. You need to avoid certain corridors in the mall. And you go, that sounds crazy. Are you actually being serious right now? I I should just get rid of internet? Yes. That is what Jesus is saying. Do what is crazy. Do whatever it takes, please. It's not worth you losing your life over this. Picking up your cross daily means great sacrifice and getting rid of internet or your computer may mean that. It's better to hurt than to spend your whole life in hell, Jesus says. Now that might seem a little harsh. That might seem a little too extreme, right? That Maybe Jesus is using hyperbole there also. Well, he's not. This is why. Sex is not only an external act that signifies an internal reality. Sex is also a temporary act which signifies an eternal reality. Sex is a temporary act which signifies an eternal reality. So we look at our last point, again, the significance of sex. God has designed sex so that it is a gift. It strengthens the bond between a husband and a wife, but sex is also a way of knowing God better. Let me say that again. God has given humanity sex so that we would actually know God better. Sex gives us an experience, an understanding. It gives us language that we need in order to better understand who our God is. See, sexual intimacy just hints at, just just one in a zillionth, but it does hint at the intimacy that we will one day experience with our Savior in heaven. Sex is also given so that we would understand how God loves us and how we are in response to love him. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16. Here, God is speaking to the nation of Israel and in kind of... By application, he's speaking to us as the church, and he's describing the way that they have treated him. He's loved them. He's chosen them. He's in many ways wedded himself to Israel, and yet this is how they respond. Isaiah 16, starting in verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the whore. Because of your renown and you lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines. You play, you put on lingerie and on them you played the whore. You, the like has never been nor ever shall be. 
You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made yourself images of men, and with them you played the whore. Verse 32, adulterous wife. You receive strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. Verse 35, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all the abominable idols... And because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure and all those who loved and all those who hated. I will gather them against you from every side and I will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Then I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy." Christ has made us, the church, his people, his bride. And sex is a way, again, in a small way, though, that we might understand his great affection for us. But as Christ's spouse, when we understand the gift and the nature of sexual intimacy, and we understand the pain and devastation that lust and adultery brings our loved ones. We understand better what we have done to God when we run away from him. When Israel turns away from their God and they are following after some false deity, God says, you are acting like a lustful, adulterous spouse. And they then should know and feel what they are doing. Which means this, if sex is a way we know God better, then wrong sex means we also understand God wrongly. You see, if lust is okay, if we're saying adultery is okay, if we're affirming those things by our actions, by doing them in our own life, what is that communicating about who our God is? What are we saying about our God and our commitment to him? Are we saying that our God is an adulterous God and spouse. See, adultery, lust in our relationships, doesn't just communicate that we don't know the love of God. It also means that we don't know the forgiveness of God, that we haven't been united to him. And that's why Jesus says, if this persists, If adultery, if lust persists in your life, you will end up in hell. Here's the good news. The good news is that if we are wedded to Christ, if we do have a relationship with him, well, our God is always faithful. He never cheats on us. When we sin, Jesus is not going with wandering eyes. I I wish I could have picked someone else. When Israel sins, Jesus is not looking at the other nations and go, that would have maybe made a better spouse. 
Maybe I would have experienced greater intimacy with them. No, he is faithful. He pursues his bride. He, he is faithful to her right to the end. No sin of ours is ever strong enough to pull us apart from the love of God. If we belong to Jesus, if we repent and put our faith in him, then he is ours from this point on to the end of the age. He will forgive any sin, especially the sin of sexual immorality. You remember the story in John chapter 8? There's a woman who is caught in adultery. And a bunch of the religious rulers come to her. They gather around. They, they bend down and they pick up stones because according to them, an adulterous person deserves death. And so what does Jesus do? He comes to her. He bends down. Instead of picking up a stone, he, he writes in the sand. We're not sure what he writes, but all of a sudden, one by one, those religious rulers drop their stones and they walk away. And then Jesus looks at that woman. He picks up her face and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she looks up and she sees no one there and she says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. For forgiveness is always available. You have to want it. You have to repent of your former sins. You have to be willing to actually turn away from your former past. And a sign of you wanting it, a sign of you going and sinning no more, is cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye and doing whatever it takes to be free of this sin. Freedom and intimacy with your spouse and a deeper and truer knowledge of who Christ is is worth whatever pain it causes. Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly. He came to free us from our slavery to sin. Jesus bore our sins and he died on the cross and he rose again, symbolizing the fact that present, past, future, all of our sins are forgiven. He did that so we might enter into a relationship with him. And as we enter into a relationship, not only does that transform our sexual relationships on this earth, but it allows us to experience true intimacy with him forever and ever in heaven. That is why Jesus came. Go and sin no more. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, We are hurting. This is a hard word, Lord, and I know that through that screen, Lord, from past experience, Lord, I know that this is a, something that enslaves us. It destroys us one click at a time. And so, Lord, please help us to flee Lord, we need more than anything else to see you more clearly. Lord, we need a deeper 
and greater intimacy with you that will help us understand that that drug is killing us. Lord, transform our lives, transform our relationships, transform the way we look at our brothers and sisters, Lord. And may we bear witness by the way we act to who you are and the way in which you have loved us in Jesus. We pray in his powerful, beautiful, and faithful name. Amen.